I spent $40,000 on shoes and I have no place to live? In the 1990s, reality and fantasy blurred with the rise of hugely popular fictional women writers slash journalists like Carrie Bradshaw and Bridget Jones. Back off, Cleaver. I'm a serious journalist. In a stupidly short skirt. Oh, do you like it? But behind these relatable characters trying to balance love, life and their careers were real-life women who had their start in journalism but made it big crafting semi-autobiographical fictional aspiring journalists. It's just like you, Harry. You say things like that and you make it impossible for me to hate you. And like the director of When Harry Met Sally, Nora Ephron, who famously quit the magazine Newsweek in the 1960s because they wouldn't hire women writers. Ephron would go on to huge Hollywood success, but she never forgot her journalism roots. Every time someone comes to me who wants to write movies... I say to them, go be a journalist, and, and I think it probably seems very narcissistic, but I think it's the best training for writing there is because it, it teaches you to write very clean sentences. It teaches you to get to the point instantly or people will stop reading. And so now, some three decades later, in a digital age, where it seems everyone has a blog or a podcast, we couldn't help but wonder, are there such confessional journalists today? And are they still writing under fictionalized ultra-egos? Welcome to The Know-How, a podcast aimed at bringing academics and professionals together to dissect the pressing matters of today. I'm Dr. Glenda Cooper. And I'm Dr. Lindsay Blumel. Today our podcast guest is one of the most successful brand journalists going. Dolly Alderton presents the High Low podcast, has a best-selling book, Everything I Know About Love, and a Sunday Times column. We caught up with her in conversation with City University's Jason Bonetto to find out how brand journalism works. The big myth that people think, and I think people think about this about me all the time, that I have sat on a velvet sofa drinking Prosecco, being found with ostrich feathers, and some editor or some uh, producer thought, oh, I wonder where Dolly Alderton is. Let's go find her and offer her this amazing thing. Journalists traditionally have not had to develop a relationship with their audience. In fact, for news reporters, that would have been seen as violating objectivity. And while there have always been high-profile columnists, such as Jean Rook, dubbed the First Lady of Fleet Street, and TV presenters like Dan Rather or Barbara Walters, most journalists would go unrecognised in the street. The growth of social media, however, has meant that the relationship with the audience has changed, including two-way communication and feedback. It also allowed people to build careers that weren't dependent on being employed in a particular newsroom. I have always been a blogger for my sins, and I first started writing a blog when I was, you know, I was kind of like a pioneer of blogging, if I say that myself, uh, because I was like 15 when I was blogging, doing it on something called Blogspot. Um, uh, with kind of fuchsia pink comic sans uh, heading at the top. Alderton amassed 100,000 words on her teenage blog. She's since wiped it from the internet, but this personal writing allowed her to pitch ideas for a relationship and dating column when she finished her magazine journalism MA at City University of London. She did this to a website called Ask Men, followed by the Debrief website, before an editor there moved to the Sunday Times and put her name forward wasn't that I had uh, proved, it's not that I had any kind of uh, uh, cachet with, with my name or my CV, it was just that I had done, I, my output was huge. I was writing a lot in my 
20s and I was writing for whoever would have me and I think that that just that the more prolific you can be the better so that's and those small things do pay off and they don't feel like it at the time when I'm like sitting because I had a full-time day job at the time as well working in TV so I was writing all my freelance journalism in the evenings and at weekends so when I was sitting at my laptop you know wanting to be at the pub or with my friends downstairs watching TV on a Wednesday night after, a night after I'd come back a from a long day of shooting and I was like fucking wolfing down a bowl of penne by my laptop writing about you know this new app called Tinder. At the time, I didn't feel like, oh, all this means one day I'm going to have a column in the Sunday Times. But I knew that it was counting for something. And you don't know what the something is, but it will be something one day. Alderton went down the confessional journalism route, which meant that she explored her own and her friends' experiences for material. Confessional journalism has a long tradition, but started to become popular in the UK in the late 1980s and 1990s with writers such as Zoe Heller, when newspapers rapidly expanded and realized that young women talking about their lives were being avidly read. I decided to get a grip on my life and start a diary. Resolution number one. Will not be paranoid about weight. Will not form romantic attachments to any of the following. Alcoholics, workaholics, sleeping toms, or perverts. And will not fantasize about a particular person who embodies all these things. In fact, the rise of confessional journalism in the 1990s led to a spoof which took on a life of its own. Bridget Jones's diary was originally a column in the independent newspaper before becoming a hit book and film. But that didn't deter further women, and it was mainly women, for mining their own lives for journalism, perhaps typified by the male's Liz Jones, who catalogued her entire relationship, wedding, day-to-day -day life, and even her divorce. Uh, my name is Liz Jones, and I've written a book called The Exmoor Files, which is about my move from London, where I lived a sort of perfect fashionista magazine maven life, got divorced and moved to the countryside. However, this raises an issue about the boundaries of journalism and real life, something that Alderton herself discovered when she used friends' anecdotes. She wrote one column about whether you should sleep with someone on the first date. One of her friends said that she was about to go on the first date with a man she thought she would marry, so it was fine. So they slept together on the first date. Father went online on Wednesday. She rang me on Thursday in tears and she said, Nick's just, <laughs> Nick's just rung me and said that he's read your column and that he read that I said that I thought I was going to marry him and he was the one. And I had no idea that he knew my name or that he put me with the name on that column. And that was really, really bad. And I hadn't asked her permission. So, yeah, she didn't really talk to me. <laughs> Bit. She was like quite rightly very grumpy. So now I do always check. But you know, I've also written a memoir where basically I've learned now you just, I believe that everyone has access to the public conversation. I don't really believe in the kind of privatization of experience unless it's something so, so, so traumatic or personal. In this, Alderton was following a well known tradition. As Nora Ephron coined the phrase, everything is copy meaning that for a writer, other people's lives were up for grabs. When you write about your friends and your family, you know, I grew up with parents who wrote about us. And my sister Delia, who's a wonderful writer, got her head stuck between the banister rails when she was about seven years old and 
Within a year, it happened in a Jimmy Stewart movie that my parents wrote. So we grew up, you know, with my mother saying everything is copy and life is material and you write about what you know and all of those things. And we very much understood in our family that you can write about one another and you just can do that. But that doesn't mean when it happens, everybody is thrilled about it. Like Heffron, Alderton turned her love life into a best-selling book, Everything I Know About Love. But quirky anecdotes and heartfelt insights were not enough. To ensure success, she turned herself into a brand, not only writing the book, but producing a series of podcasts called Love Stories, doing a book tour, promoting herself via social media as well. Something that she says any writer now has to do if they want to make a living through their writing. That podcast made me absolutely no money. That was not a financial endeavour. Love Stories was to, I wanted to resonate in people's heads what the branding of the book was, what the message of the book was, the topics that I was traversing within the book. A really good way of doing that as a podcast because it's free. You can listen to it while you're at the gym or you're walking around. It doesn't take much energy and it just lodges in people he people's heads of what the book is might make it more likely that they'll buy it. The same with I did lots of brand collaborations and then I went on to do a live tour. So this was all in a cynical way. This was just a way to get my book sold because I think that a lot of journalists have a, uh, not an arrogance, but I think they think that because they've had their name in papers that those people will want to go spend 13 pounds on a hardback and they don't. Uh, so you, you have to work really hard to sell, to sell books. In some ways, there's nothing surprising about journalists multitasking to pay the rent. Charles Dickens fixed boots, Jack London sold oysters. In reverse, Karl Marx wrote dispatches for the New York Tribune to finance his other writings. What is interesting about today, however, is that more journalists are positioning themselves as brands individually, rather than being part of an organizational brand. But just like organizations, they have to be very careful about how they sell themselves. Alderton reflects on how she and her co-presenter Pandora Sykes have positioned their current affairs and pop culture podcast, The Hilo. Instead of the traditional advertising structure where every listener means X amount of money, they went for a different approach that some brands found hard to understand. They would say to us, OK, so what we've had this idea, we're going to sponsor your podcast and uh, so we can see the impact of your podcast on, us, on our sales. We're going to do a voucher that says Hilo that they put in at the checkout and then we'll gauge from that how many people are buying our lipstick or whatever. And we said, with all due respect, that's not the power of our aligning with you. The, the power that you get from us aligning with you is that people who they tune into every week, two girls who they've been listening to for years and years, who they trust, who they feel like they're in a conversation with, who they think are their friends, who also, Pandora and I are very strict about who we advertise with. We never ever would advertise for something that we don't believe in. If they're saying, in the, if you're hearing them, hearing us in your ears, in our voice, in our tone and our conversational manner that you have learned to know and trust, if we're talking about your product, that's invaluable advertising for you. That's, that's alignment that, that is more intimate than anything that you could do in, an, in a paper or uh, on the TV. And people are starting to realize that. So that's how we, that's how we priced ourselves. However, branding yourself does come at a cost, particularly because of the need to be online constantly. This can be abusive, 
A report from Amnesty International in late 2018 found out that every 30 seconds a female journalist or politician is being trolled on Twitter. Women of colour experienced significantly higher levels of abuse. They were 84% more likely to be mentioned in abusive or harassing tweets. It also eats into time. Research from Middle Tennessee State University found as far back as 2015 that social media lowers productivity. Sometimes I, th I think back to a time where I would write like time was when I would have written in the 90s or whatever an article or had published a book and then I just put it out into the world as a piece of thought or art for it to take on its own life and connect with lots of other different people and live maybe under, maybe look at reviews maybe hear at dinner parties what people thought about it but really just be getting on with telling my truth and getting on to my next piece of writing and I basically think that Twitter and Instagram for a writer like all it does is throw boulders through into that process and makes you incredibly self-conscious so that's where I am now with it. What's the, what the negativity or the... I think all of it I think all of it like I think the shackles of of kind of self and self-consciousness really do prohibit you as a writer so uh, and it's just a massive time drain that's what I was thinking you know it also that simple as that yeah you've been listening to the know-how the podcast that dissects pressing issues with academics and experts it was presented by Lindsay Blumel and Glenda Cooper and produced by Atina Dimitrova for more information on this and our other episodes, please go to our website, www.thenowhowpodcast.com, or follow us on Twitter at Know How Podcast, or on Facebook at The Know How Podcast.